Today I'm speaking to you on the subject of the goose, a swan, and a reformation. Some of you perhaps have heard messages like this I've preached before, but it's important for us to remind ourselves of this historical fact and the historical aspects of what we call the Reformation. And of course, we'll get to the Bible in a few moments, but what we need to do is to understand the history. And I'm speaking on this today because of the fact that just recently we celebrated the 505th anniversary of what is called the Reformation. So what was it all about and how do we understand it? Today I'm going to begin with a question, and the question is simply this, what is the most important question that anyone could ever ask? Is that question the question of who will be elected during our elections? Politics is very important. It's more important than most people realize, but it is not the most important issue. Could the most important issue be whether or not we as a nation are going to run out of energy? That's an important question, but it's not all important. It's not the most important. People are talking about another pandemic, and that, of course, could become very serious, maybe more serious than COVID. Is, is that the most important question? No. The most important question that you could ever ask and answer is this. How will you be faring at the time of your death? Where will you spend eternity? And is it possible to know in advance that you're going to go in heaven when you're still living here on earth? That is the most important question. All the other questions of the world fall back into insignificance in light of that question. Now, you would think that the church that has had the scriptures for 2,000 years would have always been very clear about this point. But you know, the truth is, the church has not always been clear about it. For the first 300 years, relatively clear, but then after the time of Constantine conquering Rome, you have Constantinianism, and if you can believe it, it was actually the emperors of all things, the emperors who were appointing bishops. And Constantinianism has continued even to this day. Back in the 1990s, I asked the pastor of All Souls Church in London, how did you become the pastor of All Souls Church? He said, John Majors, who at that time was the Prime Minister of England, appointed me. Now, of course, today the Prime Minister always appoints the person that the church wants. But in those days, especially during medieval times, there were things that were up for grabs and offices in the church were given to the highest bidder. That became known as simony because Simon in the New Testament wanted to purchase a miracle of God. Something else happened. There were those who took the Old Testament and they uh, didn't understand, apparently, that Jesus intended to do away with many of the rituals of the Old Testament, and they translated them into the new. For example, the priesthood. In the Old Testament, the priest represented God to the people and the people to God, and soon as the priesthood developed during medieval times, the priest was given awesome responsibility and awesome powers. 
He could tell you what penalties you have to pay for your sin, whether it's a venial sin or a mortal sin. He was given awesome responsibilities. And then there was something else, superstitions, especially during the medieval time, arose. For example, Christians used to meet where a martyr would die, and um, they would uh, pray there. But then somebody said, you know, if you actually have a bone of a martyr, it could become a relic and it would have some value. As a matter of fact, some saints might even pray for us if we venerate their relics. So you have the multiplication of relics all throughout Europe, hundreds, thousands of them, pieces of the cross, a wisp of Christ's hair, and on and on it went. Now Christ was honored during those days, during the Mass, it was referred to Christ was merciful and gracious and he shed his blood for sinners. But the question was this, how do you become worthy of his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and become worthy of the shed blood of Christ? Those were the issues. And in England, there was a man by the name of Wycliffe, and he translated the Bible into English because previously the Bible was only read in Latin. And he translated it into English, and he began a reformation, and people began to understand that it isn't through all these rituals that we get to heaven. He preached against simony. He preached that the Bible should be read in churches, and as a result of that, he received so much opposition. He had people who translated the Bible. They had to do it by hand, of course, writing it out. This is prior to the printing press. And then he taught all of his students how to die for the faith because there were so many that were dying. As a matter of fact, at St. Paul's Cathedral, when we were there a number of years ago, the guide pointed out exactly where all of Wycliffe's Bibles were burned. But his ideas spread to Prague, Prague in the Czech Republic, because some of the students went from there to there. And, and they introduced it, and there was a man in Prague by the name of John Hus. Hus was a graduate of the University of Prague. He was highly respected. And in the Czech language, his name, John Hus, Hus means goose. As a matter of fact, he used to sign his letters, the goose. Now, he began to preach the same doctrines. He preached against simony. He preached against, he preached that every believer was indeed a priest before God. When you go to Prague, you see a great statue dedicated to him, and it is people being receiving the cup, the average person receiving the bread and the wine. So he began to preach, and the Pope didn't like it, and he issued an interdict. That is to say, no sacraments at all in Prague as long as Huss is preaching this. So he stopped preaching. He was run out of town. Then there was a council in Constance, Germany, that met because there was a huge embarrassment in the church. 
There were three popes, all of them claiming to be the right heir of Peter, all of them trying to raise money to fight the other, and the Council of Constance was called by an emperor by the name of Sigismund who said, we have to clean up this embarrassment. And what they did is they invited Hutz to come, and they said, we'll give you safe passage, but we want you to be tried as a heretic and see if you are one. Come to the council. So Hus decided to go to the council. Zygmunt's brother was King Wenceslas, and King Wenceslas said, go, and so Hus went. When he got to the council, he defended himself that he was not a heretic. He was put into a prison, fed only bread and water to try to break him down, and there he wrote letters to his people asking them to remain true to the faith. And he said, I'm going to read one of his prayers, Oh, without thee, I cannot go to a cruel death. Give me, Lord, a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that I may lay down my life patient as a lamb and with joy. Hus was taken, there was a crown put on his head, and uh, it was a paper crown mocking him of three demons fighting for his soul. Hus says, I commit my soul to the living God. He was taken to the stake to be burned, but before he was burned, he said these words, you can cook this hus, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years a swan will arise and he will sing and you will not silence him. 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door, believing that he was the fulfillment of Hus's prophecy. And I know that swans might not sing, but they do trumpet, and so the idea arose. There was a, a saying, uh, trumpet the swan, refers to Luther, and in Lutheran art today, what you frequently see is swans. Now, I'm going to speak about Luther just to remind you I'm not Lutheran. I don't think that Luther got everything right. I think he got some things wrong, but I am going to speak about that which I believe he did get right. There he is in a monastery, and he has one goal for himself, and that is, how can I be holy enough for God to accept me? He took advantages of all of the privileges that the church gave him sleeping on a hard floor. Rebecca and I have been there many times, and we have seen the, the stone floor upon which the monastery was built and where he slept. He went begging. He fasted so long some people thought he would die. The question always was this, how do I get right with this holy God? Oh, I know that there's mercy in Christ, but how do I make myself worthy of that mercy? Now, confession was of some solace to him, but sometimes he confessed his sins up to six hours at a time. Oy vey! Six hours at a time until his, his confessor Staupitz was so perturbed with Luther, he said, the next time you come, don't confess all the little sins, confess, confess murder and adultery, something like that, but not all these little picadillos, these little sins. But Luther was a better theologian than Staupitz. Luther understood that the issue was not whether the sin was big or little, but whether or not it had been confessed or forgiven, because he knew that the smallest smidgen of sin cannot enter heaven, 
and a sinner has to be as holy as God to get there. But Luther reached an impasse. Sins, in order to be forgiven, had to be remembered, but if they were not remembered, they could not be confessed, and if they were not confessed, they could not be forgiven. He was led to despair. It was like, you know, wiping the floor with a faucet running. There was no end to it. Finally, there was a new university that had begun in the little town of Wittenberg, and Luther was asked to teach there. And he began teaching the Psalms. He comes to Psalm 22, where Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther says, Jesus is feeling the same thing I'm feeling, alienation, separation from God. The German word is anfechtungen despair of soul. I wonder if Jesus experienced that for me. And then he begins lecturing on the book of Romans, and he comes to chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther said, day and night I was pondering, what's the connection between faith and the righteousness of God? And then he continued in the book of Romans and discovered in chapter 3, verse 34, it says that we are justified, declared righteous freely as a gift through Christ. And then in chapter 4, he reads this. These are the opening verses. What shall, if Abraham was justified by works, this is verse 2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Wow. So the righteousness that I'm trying to attain is a gift given. And then he gets to chapter 6, verse 23, and you can look that up for yourself. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life. Luther begins to see something, namely that um, Jesus Christ bore our guilt for those who believe by faith, and that we receive His righteousness not by works, but by faith. I'm thinking, for example, even of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are justified, it says, not by works, lest any man should boast. So he comes to the conclusion, and then he realizes something. Righteousness is a gift. Of course, righteousness has to be a gift. Because if you're talking about the righteousness of God, which is even beyond our ability to be able to comprehend, if you're talking about the righteousness of God, then God has to supply it. I, I can't make it any better. I can't improve it. I can't detract from it. It's His righteousness given to me as a gift. As a matter of fact, it's a permanent righteousness. Once I, through faith, repent of my sins and receive Christ and that gift, it'll take me all the way to heaven. One of the first doctrines he gave up was purgatory because purgatory said, you know, a lot of people are dying. 
They're not bad enough to go to hell, but they're not good enough to go to heaven. They are still paying for some of their sins. And therefore, what we need to do is to have purgatory. Luther said, no, if I die, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to me takes me all the way into the presence of God, and I am declared there by God as righteous as he himself is. I'm glad that some of you still say amen in this church. It is still legal. For that we are thankful. So what happened is now suddenly he began to realize that this righteousness is given to everyone. It's the priesthood of the believer. So now you can understand, he says, it was as if I went into the gates of paradise because the issue was no longer how high God's standard was as long as I didn't have to meet it. God in Christ met that for me. Centuries earlier, the great theologian and philosopher Augustine had said this, oh God, demand whatever you will, but supply what you demand. Wow. I can't attain your righteousness, but in Christ I have the righteousness that you accept. Now isn't it interesting, Luther was saying in effect, Lord Jesus, what's my contribution to salvation? It's my sin. Lord, I am thy sin, thou art my righteousness. Elsewhere the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that God took Christ who was sinless and he was made sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God in him. Think about that. Jesus got what he didn't deserve, namely our sin, and we get what we don't deserve, namely his righteousness. Now, meanwhile, in Rome, there was a pope by the name of Pope Leo, and he wanted to build St. Peter's Cathedral the, uh, that you see on the news. And uh, he needed money. And they began at this time, he endorsed the idea of selling indulgences. Now, indulgences didn't mean that you necessarily were forgiven, only God could do that, but an indulgence was taking away the temporal penalties of sin. Now, indulgences had been sold for centuries, but this was a very unique time, and so what happened is Pope Leo said you can sell them not only for the living, but for the dead. So there were vendors going throughout Europe saying, your mother is in purgatory, and she is saying, but for a few pence I can be delivered and how can you be so hard-hearted not to forgive? And so these vendors went. Tetzel was, of course, the most famous. There was a little jingle as soon as the coin in the coffer rings another soul from purgatory springs. That was too much for Luther. Luther decided that he was going to do something about this. It was an abuse. As a matter of fact, there were people who actually showed Luther documents that the temporal penalties of sin had been taken care of, of sins that they had not yet committed but planned to commit. That was too much for Luther. November the 1st, 1517, in the great castle church 
in Wittenberg. The Elector Frederick, he's the one who was going to display all of his relics. Now, it's going to be hard for some of you to believe this, but I've known this for a long time because I read church history, but also, if you don't believe me, you can Google it. He had 19,000 relics. And if you came and viewed them and venerated them and gave a gift, somehow it would help you in your pilgrimage to heaven. So the day before, October 31st, 1517, Luther nails his 95 theses on the castle church door. He does not at all intend to split the church. He just said, let's clean up the abuses. But after that, things began to deteriorate. Pope Leo wouldn't hear what he had to say. He said he's a drunken German who will feel better when he is sober. And so Luther becomes very famous because these theses are now printed because of the printing press and they're spread throughout all of Germany. And pretty soon you have a reformation and the genie, so to speak, was out of the bottle. Luther begins to churn out books. He begins to churn out all kinds of pamphlets. And uh, he's famous all throughout Germany. Meanwhile, there's an emperor, and the emperor is Charles V. Charles V inherited vast lands. And he wanted to put Luther to death, which was what was done in those days to heretics, but he had a problem. If he did that, all the Germans would be mad at him, and he needed the support of Germany in order to, uh, in order to fight against the Turks. This was the rise of the Ottoman Empire, and he needed their help. So he said, I'll, I'll kill him, but first of all, we'll have a hearing. And this is known as the Diet of Worms. Now, many English-speaking people call it the Diet of Worms, which incidentally, if you are on a Diet of Worms, I can assure you, you'll lose an awful lot of weight. But actually, <laughs> it is the Diet of Worms. A W in German is actually like a V, the Diet of Worms. So Charles calls it. Luther is called in. He's asked whether or not he is willing to recant his documents. He said, give me till tomorrow. I want to read the prayer that he prayed that night, at least a part of the prayer. He knows that he's going to his death. Now he didn't because of some interesting events, but he thought he would immediately be killed. So this is his prayer. How do people who believe that they are going to be martyred, how do they pray? Oh, almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world? Behold, it opens its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in thee. How weak is the flesh, and Satan is so strong. If it is only in the strength of this world that I must put my trust, it's all over. My last hour has come. My condemnation has been pronounced. Oh, God, oh, God, do thou help me against the wisdom of this world. Do this alone, O God, for this is not my work, this is thine. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with all these great ones in the world. O God, hearest thou me not? God, are you dead? No, you can't die. You only are hiding yourself. You've chosen me for this work. O God, without you at my side, I cannot die. I am ready to lay down my life for thy truth, patient as a lamb. 
for it is the cause of justice, it is thine. And although the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which is still the work of thy hand, should be slain, stretched out upon the pavement, cut in pieces, reduced to ashes, my soul is thine. Thy word is my assurance of it. My soul belongs to thee and shall belong to thee forever. The next day, they're even more present. Here's King Charles, of course, all the German dignitaries, all of the princes. Luther has shown his writings. He is asked to recant. Finally, after some back and forth, he says something that I always tell parents their children should learn because we're living in an age when people have to stand against the culture. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is taken captive by the word of God. I will not and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise, so help me God. Amen. The next day, Charles wrote what is known as the Edict of Worms, that Luther should be put to death but he'll be given safe conduct back to Wittenberg, but he is an outlaw. If he's killed, there'll be no replies, repa, uh, no uh, consequences. Reprisals, I think, is the word. Luther is on his way home. He's captured by friends. He's taken to the Wartburg Castle. He translates the New Testament into German, a German that people can understand in 11 months. He is there. He's churning out other books and so forth. But as the saying goes, the genie was out of the bottle, and it could never be put back again. What is the impact of the Reformation? Let me give this to you very quickly. Let's just think of it historically. Here you have a young man in France by the name of John Calvin. He hears about Luther. He reads his documents. Calvin says that God overcame his darkness. He believed the gospel. He goes to Geneva. He writes a book entitled The Institutes of the Christian Religion that becomes the textbook for many parts of Europe for two centuries. That's why you have the Dutch Reformed. You wonder where in the world they came from. They were impacted by Calvin. You have, for example, also in England, Henry VIII is ruling. Henry VIII, you remember, who had six wives, he beheaded two of them. And Luther had written a document saying that there are only two sacraments, and Henry VIII wrote a reply and defended all seven sacraments. And the Pope says, Henry, you are such a great theologian. I'm going to give you a title. You are the defender of the faith. And every British monarch since that time, including the present King Charles, is a defender of the faith. Later on, uh, Henry has a dispute with the Pope because the Pope won't give him a divorce, complicated story, and Henry says, in effect, that's enough of that. I am the head of the Church of England. So today, every monarch, including King Charles, is the head of the Church of England. What about America? Well, there were people going from, uh, from uh, Geneva to Geneva, I should say, 
during the reign of Bloody Mary, who killed about 250 Protestants, and it was there all these English people come to Calvin. Calvin, of course, doesn't speak English, but they said, you know, we need a new English translation of the Bible. So they translate it, and it's called the Geneva Bible. And when the pilgrims came to the United States, what did they bring with them? The Geneva Bible. But what does the Reformation teach us in relationship? First of all, the power of God's Word. When Luther was there in the Wartburg Castle, he supposedly threw an inkwell at the devil. Tourists always want to see where the inkwell landed, so, you know, uh, the uh, tour guides rub a little bit of soot on the wall. But I don't know that he did. He said in the table talks, I fought the devil with ink. What he meant was, I fought the devil by giving people the Word of God. Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, the Bible says in Jeremiah 23, 29? The power of the word, the power of the priesthood of the believer. No longer the complicated priesthood, but you are a priest before God. And this is, you know, you've heard about the Protestant work ethic. These are the seeds, because now all work becomes special if you do it to the glory of God. You know, it's no longer just a work that a priest gives you. You do it all. Luther says God milks cows, but he does it by using farmers. And by the way, you young mothers will be glad to hear this. He said, when a father changes the diaper of a baby, he is doing a good work in the sight of God if he does it for the glory of God. Do I have a witness to some of that from some of you who are young? But the most important question, freedom of religion, yes, this was the seed, but we must hurry on. The most important issue is the clarification of the gospel. How do sinners stand righteous and be accepted by God? That is the issue. When my mother was 100, she and I used to talk every Saturday evening because she prayed for me. I said, Mother, are you absolutely sure that when you go to heaven, that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And she said, I am as sure as if I were already there. Wow. How so? Is it because she was a good woman? She was a very good woman, hardworking. Her last son didn't pick up on that very well, but very hardworking woman. Is it because she studied all the books that uh, have been written about apologetics? No, those are important. Now, my parents spoke German, and I, they learned how to read English, but I have to confess to you, they didn't read a single book that their son had written. <laughs> how this assurance? Two ways, number one, the promise of Jesus, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. We are justified by faith alone, not in our righteousness and in our goodness, but his goodness. And Jesus supplies all the goodness and the perfection that God demands. She believed the promises of God, but there was something else, and that is she believed, as the Bible says so clearly in the book of Romans. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God and we can call God Abba Father. It's the Holy Spirit. The assurance comes when the Holy Spirit, you say, well, yeah, you know, there are other religions who also believe they're right. There are religions that tell their people that if you're willing to die for the faith, you know, you'll go directly to heaven. So Christianity isn't unique. Hear me carefully, there are religions that teach that, but if you talk to individuals and ask them, do you have absolute assurance that if you die fighting for your faith, you'll go to heaven? They'll say no, but that's what my religion teaches, and I'm hoping for the best. Only Christianity has the transformation of the Holy Spirit of God for all who believe. When I was 14, and some of you have heard this story, out on the farm in Canada, when I accepted Christ as Savior, I knew immediately that I knew God, and He births within us a love for Him, and it becomes transforming. Do you remember the days when you traveled on a plane, you could talk to the person next to you? You don't do that because, number one, COVID, everybody was wearing a mask, and now everybody's into their listening devices. But one time I was talking to a woman who, she was elderly but very self-assured and self-righteous. And we got into a discussion, and she said, I know for sure that hell doesn't exist. And so, of course, I asked her where she was getting her information, whether or not she really knew better than Jesus, who believed in hell. And she continued on, and finally I said, do you, would you describe yourself as ungodly? Oh, no, she was offended. She said, I'm not ungodly. And I said, you know, that's too bad because that means that what Jesus did on the cross can't be applied to you and you can't receive any of its benefits. She said, why? I said, because the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. And unless you realize your need of a Savior and your need because we're all sinners in the sight of a holy God in ways that we don't fully understand. Unless you understand that, you will miss the heart of the gospel. But if you understand that you are a sinner and you need the righteousness of Christ and the Spirit of Christ upon you, turn from your sin, believe the gospel. You can do that right now, no matter where you are, no matter where you're listening to this. You can move from death to life, spiritually speaking, if you acknowledge your sinfulness and trust in Christ alone. You're a great sinner? You say, Pastor Lutzer, I'm a great sinner. Well, I'll tell you, I have some good news. I have a great Savior to recommend to you who died for sinners. Some of you think you're saved because you believe, but the faith has not been born of a heart that makes you realize you need a Savior. Cleave to Christ. And like my mother, with assurance, who, by the way, in case you're wondering, died at 103, the assurance that when you die, you belong to God and you belong to Him forever.
the terrors of law and of God. With me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all of my sins from view. My name on the palm of his hands eternity cannot erase. Forever there it stands, a mark of indelible grace. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask in this minute that people who are listening may trust Christ. May they acknowledge their sinfulness, knowing that Jesus died for sinners and that we have assurance through all that He has done, not of works, lest we should boast. It's all of grace and it's all of faith. Cause people right now, I ask, to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.